What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Have you ever heard of something that sounded so bizarre and crazy, but come to find out it was an actual, absolute fact? Sometimes we, sometimes it's harder to believe a fact. Sometimes it's harder to believe truth than it is a fairy tale. Listen to this. I thought this was absolutely hysterical, but it's actually true. Did you know cotton candy was invented by a dentist? (laughs) It all makes sense now. It all makes sense. Um, Anyways, this article goes on to say, cotton candy isn't exactly great for your teeth, and that's why it might surprise you to learn that the machine that makes this sweet treat was invented by a dentist named William Morrison. Though he looked after people's teeth for a living in 1897, it's a long time ago, he also worked alongside uh, another uh, fellow to create a cotton candy machine according to National Geographic. Have you ever had uh, a, got one of them cases of Pringles, the chips? Have you ever got your hands stuck inside of one of those things? Uh, I mean, it can happen to the best of us, but... But did you know that, that when the inventor of the can of Pringles died, he requested that his remains were to be placed into a Pringles can? I, I didn't believe it, but, but listen to the, the reality. Um, it says, the remains of the inventor of the Pringles can are in a Pringles can. Frederick Barr was the man responsible for creating the iconic Pringles can. That's why when he passed away in 2008, his children honored his wishes to be laid to rest in one. Uh, One of the children said, When my dad first raised the burial idea in the 80s, I chuckled about it. The eldest son told Time magazine, but it turned out um, he, he was serious. So after his passing, his children stopped by stopped to buy a can of Pringles while heading to the memorial service. And his son recalled, My siblings and I briefly debated what flavor to use, but I said, Look, we need to use the original. (laughs) Isn't that something? I mean, sometimes we can hear something like this, and we say, That is just too good to be true. How could could that have happened? Well, the reality is, is sometimes it's harder to believe the reality than it is fantasy. Today, I I just want to... Share all that with you to lead in to the thought that that we have a lot of things that we could believe that are actually true that sound crazy, but it's reality. But one uh, additional crazy truth that is reality is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And so today, the key thought that I have for us is this key central th- statement is is this: the resurrection is the greatest truth in the world, and you'd be crazy not to believe it. The resurrection is the greatest truth in the world, and you'd be crazy not to believe it. It's interesting, when we read our passage today in John chapter 20, one of the disciples was uh, was, uh, kind of uh, 
doubting the credibility of all the witnesses, not just the ladies' witness, but all of them together. And he said, unless I see Jesus for myself and, and put my hands in his hands and put my hands in his side, I'm not going to believe it. And so today, the title of my sermon is this, The Day Thomas Believed the resurrection. The day Thomas believed the resurrection. Now remember, the key thought that I have for us for the, the several sermons about the resurrection is if you do not believe in Christ's resurrection, then you are just simply not a Christian. Now you can become a Christian, but if you right now, this very moment, do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, then you are not actually a believer in Christ. And the thought for us today is this, that the resurrection is the greatest truth in the world and you would be crazy not to believe it. I believe history revolves around the concept of Jesus' life, his death on the cross, and his magnificent and glorious resurrection. Now, all that being said, we're kind of asking the thought or this question, what does the Bible teach about the scenes after the resurrection of Christ? And my goal throughout these sermons is just simply to, to attempt to walk through chronologically these post-resurrection scenes. There's quite a few of them. And today we're going to hit just two. The two found in our passage at hand in John chapter 20. But to just kind of give us context of what we talked about last week. Mary Magdalene was at the tomb crying and afraid. She saw two angels and then Jesus approaches her from behind. She thought he was the gardener until Jesus called her by name. Jesus sends her back to the apostles with the news to prepare them for his appearance later that day. As the other women were running to tell the disciples the news of the empty tomb, Jesus also appeared to them. They bowed before him in absolute worship. Christ commanded them to inform the disciples to go to Galilee where they will find him. Meanwhile, the guards who were at the tomb went before the leaders of the Jews to conspire that the disciples stole the body of Jesus in exchange they received money from the Sanhedrin. While on their way to Emmaus, a couple of disciples were going to that town, and Jesus appeared to them, asking them what they were talking about. And Jesus eventually revealed to them through the Scriptures how he was the promised Messiah that all the prophets talked about. It was getting late on their journey, so those two disciples invited Jesus into the place for dinner. But after they understood what Jesus was talking about, how he was talking about himself, he vanished. And then they ran and rushed to inform the disciples the news. And when they arrived, Peter affirmed that he saw the resurrected Lord. That brings us to right here in John chapter 20 and verse 19. Here they are in this room. This is still resurrection day, but this is actually resurrection evening. The morning has passed. The afternoon has gone. And now we're in the evening hours getting ready for them to eventually lay at rest to sleep. But this first appearance that I want to talk to you about today is, is actually the first scene. It is, it is appearance five of Jesus making his bodily presence known after his resurrection. And he appears, Jesus appears to the apostles minus Thomas. So this scene has been called Jesus appears to the eleven. And here in John chapter 20 and verse 19, he makes his fifth appearance to the people after he rose from the dead. And, and the Bible says that the same day of all these other events, so that's how we know it's in the evening hours, that is getting around dark time. And the Bible says that he appears to these disciples here the first day, so we know it's still Sunday. And the Bible says that when the doors were shut. Now, this word shut, it gives the connotation that the doors were locked. 
So remember, they followed Jesus. And Jesus was just crucified. And Jesus was, we know that he just rose again. But, but they were most likely afraid that these people were going to come and hunt them down and crucify them too. So they're locked away in this place there because they, in a sense, were afraid for their lives like you and me might be as well. And there, it's interesting. The Bible says that Jesus appeared in the middle of them. Now, there's so much speculation about what this means. It is certainly possible that Jesus just pops there there, or he walked through the wall. I would love to see some of you try to run through that wall right here. I'd pay good money to watch you try to do that. But I know that no matter how much of a magician you might think you are, you're not going to walk through that brick wall. And I'm sure you're saying, well, we'd love to see you try to do that, Brother Brian. Well, that's not happening today. You can come back later tonight for the circus at about 7 o'clock right here. Um, Just kidding. We're not having that here. But anyways, um, here we see that that there's so much speculation about what took place, about how Jesus showed up. I, I don't know to be honest with you. I don't think we fully know, but what we do know is the doors are locked and Jesus just shows up in the room. I believe what this is telling us is that Jesus, even in his post-resurrection state, just like when he did all these miracles, he created this world and he created the laws in which make up this world and he created the cycles of life in this world and he has the ability to defy all the laws he created. And so I believe that's what's taking place here. But anyways, he goes on to say in verse 20 that, that he says, and excuse me, in verse 19, he shows up and says, peace be unto you. And then the disciples are here. He, 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 he sees the disciples and he shows them his hands. He gives them the evidence that this is the resurrected Messiah, that he is alive and well. And what a day that is. Here it just shows that, that it's, he shows them his hands and his side. And the Bible says that, they were, that these disciples were glad. What a glad day it was for them. But I will say this, that it will be a great and glad day. An amazing day when we see the resurrected Messiah in his full glory in heaven when we part through the portals of death or through the portal of the rapture. Here the Bible says that they saw him. And in verse 21, Jesus looks at them and says, Peace be to you again. And then he says, As my Father has sent you, even so I am going to send you as well. And so here is one of the passages that we get for the five great commission passages. Now, the others are, it seems like he's at another scene. But in this moment, when he's with these 11 disciples in this room here, he's commissioning them that I am also going to send you just as God sent me, God the Father sent me to come and do the work here. And then verse 22 and verse 23 is probably the most controversial verses of our message today. And I'm not claiming to be a Bible scholar. I'm not claiming to be a theologian by any way, shape, or form. I have not arrived in those areas, but I will share with you where I lean. I believe verse 22, when it speaks about Jesus looking to them, and he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe what it's meaning here is he's giving them the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And in Acts chapter 2, we read about how the Holy Spirit came. And then in verse 23, I do not think that that he is giving them the power to go around and and declare through these disciples' own power that the people are going to have their sins forgiven. But I think what it means here in verse 23, when it says, whoever sins you remit, they will be remitted. I believe what it's referring to is that based upon the work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection, if you go out and preach the good news of the gospel and somebody comes to faith and repentance and believes that Jesus is who he said he was, the son of God, then you can declare to them that based on that profession and the word of God, their sins can be forgiven. One commentator said this about these verses, forgiveness of sins is one of the major benefits of the death of Jesus. 
It is the essence of the new covenant. Proclaiming the forgiveness of sins was the prominent feature of the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. Jesus was giving the apostles, and by extension the church, the privilege of announcing heaven's terms on how a person can receive forgiveness. If one believes in Jesus, then a Christian has the right to announce his forgiveness. If a person rejects Jesus' sacrifice, then a Christian can announce that person is not forgiven. What a very profound statement. Now, it is interesting here that these are only some of the details that are about this scene because Luke's gospel records extra parts about this scene. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus appearing to the 11 apostles, all of them but Thomas. And in Luke 24, verses 36 through 49, we're not going to read all of these. But I do want to draw your attention to verse 44. This is a section that, that for some reason or the other, John did not feel led to write about. But Luke does. And so a very similar scene. Jesus shows up in the middle of them, and he begins to talk to them and shows them his hands and, and his side. And, and, and then um, the Bible says, in fact, in verse 41, here's a detail that's not mentioned, is he actually sits down and eats with them, eats a, a fish and eats a honeycomb. And then the Bible says in verse 44, this is where I really want to emphasize today. It says that, that, that he speaks to them and says, these are the words which I spake to you which I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Let's pause right here. Most of the time when you read the Bible, whether it's new or old, it's, it's a twofold classification of the Old Testament. You have the law and the prophets. And occasionally there are writers who will do it in three categories. You have the law, the prophets, and the book of Psalms. And Jesus is just simply saying that the, the, the point of the Old Testament, whether it's the law of Moses, whether it's the prophetic writings of Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel or, or Jonah, and whether it's the Psalms like David or, or any others writing them, it's all pointing to the Messiah and I am the Messiah. And then in verse 45, just like the other passage of last week, the Bible says that he, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Listen, you could, you could go to a university and get a, a degree in the Bible. Then you could go to a seminary and get a degree at the graduate level. And you could go off and get your PhD in theology. And listen, you could still not understand the Word of God. You could study it in an academic setting. But until God opens your eyes, you will not fully understand the meaning of His Word. And I believe here in this moment, he's doing that with the disciples. They, he, he heard him preach all these five major sermons in his life and ministry. They, they saw him do all these miracles but they still couldn't connect the dots. And now they see the resurrected Messiah and now they see the light, go, the light bulb goes off and they fully understand that this guy is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who he said he was. And then in verse 46, he opens up these scriptures and he says, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer or the Messiah, the anointed one, and to rise from the dead the third day. So it appears that in this moment, he's taking select passages of Scripture from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and he's pointing them to his life about how it was prophesied of, of old that the Messiah would come and die and be resurrected so that mankind could have their sins forgiven. And then 
he says in verse 47, and that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached or proclaimed in his name among the nations, beginning first at Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses. Here is another passage about the Great Commission. How he's looking at them and he's, he's pointing to them the old passages in the Old Testament. And now he says, this is all about me. And now it's your job to be witnesses. That is, you're to get on the witness stand like in a court of law and bear record and testimony about me and my works that you saw me do. And what great application we can receive today that we are called every single day, not just here as we gather here in this place, but every single day, whether we're wherever we are at Food Lion, Kroger, Walmart, or at the Exxon gas station or wherever you might be, you are called to be a witness for Jesus on the witness stand every single day. At your workforce, wherever you go, you are called when opportunity arises to point and direct people to the good news of Jesus Christ. May God help us to be faithful in doing that. That is scene number one today, and it occurs on resurrection evening. The, the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, appears to the eleven, all of them except for Thomas. And in John chapter 20, if you want to turn back there, and verse 24 and 25, we read about how Thomas wasn't there and how the disciples, they run to Thomas and they say, we have seen the Lord. And he says, unless I put my hand in his hand, and unless I put my hand in his side, unless I see him, I will not believe. Isn't that interesting? So many people in our world today have a similar philosophy that unless Jesus showed up to me right now, I'm not going to believe him. You know, in Luke's gospel, in that unique story about the rich man of Lazarus. We read about how he just said, hey, just send somebody back from the dead so that they can tell my family members because I'm suffering in the torments of hell. Tell them, please, through that. He said, they have the law and the prophets. And if they don't believe the word of God, they're not going to believe when somebody showed up out of the cemetery. Today, I just want to pause and say this, that that God has not called us to go out into the world to debate the word of God with people. I, I think that there are a time and place for debating different theological topics within a church setting and try, try to hash some of that stuff out. But listen, God didn't call us to go to these places and try to debate people about coming to faith in Christ. He says to go into all the world and preach. That means proclaim. Yes, I know that the, the apostles went into the Jewish synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. And what that means is they went in and they, they took the Old Testament scriptures and they said, hey, this, is, this proves that Jesus was the Messiah. I understand all that. But our message is to simply go out and to herald forth the good news of the gospel and just simply be witnesses. Listen, I don't have to understand everything about science. I don't have to understand everything about archaeology. I don't have to understand everything about medicine to be able to share the gospel. All we have to do is say, hey, the good news is, is, that, is that if you don't know Christ, you're lost. And the only way to be found is through a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is put your faith in him. That's the message we're called to proclaim. Now, it is interesting that some of those sciences, if we will, seem to point back to the Word of God, but we can't use that as exclusive evidence to support our view. We don't need any of that stuff necessarily. We have God's Word, and God has been faithful to preserve His Word throughout time, and so all we need to share the gospel is the Word of God. Now, it does happen to help when you can look at a map and see Jerusalem there. It does happen to help that, that there are times when, when it seems like science lines up perfectly with the Bible or history lines up perfectly with the Bible. It is amazing, but we don't need that stuff 
exclusively to share the gospel. All we need is the death, burial, and resurrection. That's what you see in the book of Acts. And so just in like manner, we are called to go into the world now. With that in mind, we're going to come across people who refuse to believe no matter what you share with them. And so you don't have to convince them of anything. All you have to do is just say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah, and he died for you and loves you. And all you have to do is put your faith and trust in him. Now, we see Thomas says, I will not believe unless I see him. But then there's a time of silence. What I say for these next several days, Jesus ghosts humanity for seven days. If you don't know what that means, well, all it means is, is if you call somebody or text them or email them or message them, you're just not going to respond. And I know many of you are, are married and you, you may not understand the modern form of dating, but if you ghost somebody in the dating world today, that means that at one time you were interested in them and now you're no longer interested in them and you never respond to any of their messages again. That's what it means. You ghost. At least, you know, in previous generations, you had the decency to call them or respond to them. Hey, I'm not really interested in you. Let's part our ways. Now you just don't even deal with that, that contention. You just don't reply. <laughs> Anyways, Jesus, in a sense, ghosts humanity for seven days. We have no record of the following seven days until the next Sunday, the Sunday following his resurrection, about what took place. And that leads us to verse 26 of John's Gospel. The second scene today is Jesus appears to the apostles with Thomas present. So the other scene, Jesus appeared to the apostles with Thomas absent, but now this one, Jesus appears to the apostles with Thomas present. And this is the sixth appearance, appearance number six of Jesus after his resurrection. And in verse 26, the Bible says, after eight days. So if it's Sunday and you have eight days later, you have the next Sunday. So one week later, fully. And it says, if you begin counting on Sunday as day number one, the following Sunday is day number eight. And so it says, after eight days, again, his disciples were then. So here they are in this place again. And, and the Bible says that Thomas was also with them. And here it says, the door's being shut again, but Jesus comes in. And he stood in the midst of them. Remember, so much speculation about how it went on. But all we know is Jesus created this world, and he can defy the laws that he created. And so somehow he appeared in the middle of them, and he says, peace be to you. But this time, instead of speaking to all of them first, he speaks to Thomas individually. And he says, Thomas, give me your hand and your fingers and hold my hand. And then he says, reach here and put your hand and put it inside of my side. And he says, do not be faithless, but believing. This word believing gives the idea of entrusting, entrusting something. Whether you realize this or not, you are entrusting that pew you're sitting on. Did you realize that? There could be a time when, when you sat down on that pew and it just gave out and you fell and, and hit the bottom. And in fact, we're trusting that this, this building and structure is built properly to where all of us gather in here and we just don't fall down to the basement floor. We're putting our trust in it. And just as you entrust that, what the Bible says here, this word believe, it gives a similar idea of entrusting Jesus to be who he said he was. Now, I love this verse. And it says, Thomas looks to Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Now, I love the word Lord. Would you say Lord with me? Lord. Say it again. Lord. This word gives the idea that, that Jesus is the supreme authority in all the universe. 
It's the, the original word is kurios, and it just simply means that he is the highest form of authority in all the world. And remember, in Paul's writings in Philippians, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And here it gives the idea that when, when Thomas looks to Jesus, he said, you are my highest authority in my life who I will answer to. But then he says, God, say God with me, God, say it again, God. This comes from a Greek word that says, that means, that is theos. And it literally means that not only he is in Lord, he is the supreme authority, but here it means that he is the supreme deity. And so out of all the Roman gods that they were accustomed to of their day and context, they would say that this God of the Bible, this God incarnate Jesus, who is just as much as God as God and just as much as man as man, there in the flesh, he says, you are not just the highest authority, greater than even Caesar himself, and not just greater than Zeus and, and all the others, but you are the greatest God that the world has ever seen because you're the only God. Has there ever been a time in your life when you said, Jesus, you are my Lord, and Jesus, you are my God? Saying, God, you are the highest deity ever because you are the only God ever, and you are the highest authority in my life, and I will answer to you. That is the greatest aspect and perspective to have about God. He's the highest authority and the greatest deity. And we will all stand before him one of these days. But then Jesus says, he says this remarkable thought, and I think this is very important for you and me, because we weren't alive 2,000 years ago, and we didn't see Jesus face to face like they did. They saw him live for about 33 years. They witnessed his miracles and his messages and his death and his resurrection. And here he looks to Thomas and he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. In other words, now you've seen me, now you've entrusted in me to be the Messiah and Son of God. But he says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. I believe there's a special blessing on you and me right now because we have not physically with our own eyes, seeing Jesus like they did, but we're believing by faith that he is the Messiah, like he said he was. And we're believing by faith that he died on the cross, he rose again, and that he is coming back again. And we're believing by faith that we will spend all eternity with him in a glorious place the Bible describes as heaven. It's interesting, right here, there's another interlude. And remember in Matthew 19 and in Mark 16, the Bible speaks about how these ladies were called to go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Well, many historians think that it is after this scene when these disciples were to make their 60-mile trek to Galilee, and there they would see Christ. And it is in that place where we believe that he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Mark 16. And, of course, it would make sense that they're going to travel 60 miles in, in their culture, which was very primitive concerning um, how they traveled. They didn't have the sophisticated traveling abilities like we have today with automobiles and everything. They traveled by foot or by horseback. And so it would make sense. But look at verse 30 and 31, all that aside. John is giving us just a, a little footnote here about the life and ministry of Christ. He says in verse 30 that there are other signs that Jesus did that his, that his disciples witnessed. But if they wrote it down, the books of this world could not contain them. And then it says that these are written. In other words, John is saying what I have assembled together 
And we know that that was all done by the Holy Spirit of inspiration. He says, what had been assembled here, right here in this book, the purpose of these miracles and, and the messages that are portrayed in John's gospel is so that people would entrust that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and the Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. Through Christ is the only way somebody can receive salvation. Through Christ is the only way anybody could ever enter heaven. That might sound crazy to many. It might sound crazy to believe that exclusively Jesus is the only way to heaven. And exclusively by his, the shedding of his blood is the only way man can have their sins forgiven. It might sound crazy, but, but listen to this. I think this is crazier. Did you know that NASA was sued by three men for trespassing on Mars? Did you hear me? Somebody sued NASA for trespassing on Mars. This is actually true. You, you can go read about it if you like. But uh, the article says, NASA has been working on Mars-related projects for years, but their exploration, effort, their exploration efforts faced an unexpected situation in 1997 when they were sued by three men for trespassing on the red planet. Quote, we inherited the planet from our ancestors 3,000 years ago, the men from Yemen told the Arabic language newspaper according to CNN. However, in an interview with CNN, NASA brushed off the suit. Their news chief, Brian Welch, told the outlet, while apparently trying not to laugh, it's a ridiculous claim. Mars is a planet out in the solar system that is the property of all humanity, not two or three guys in Yemen. I would go on to say that it's the property of God. But anyways, I think it's interesting that that if somebody thinks what I believe about the Bible is crazy and there are people out here trying to sue NASA for exploring a Mars, now that, my friends, is crazy. Here's another one. This, is, this blew my mind. This is crazy. You might think I have a crazy diet, but this is a crazy diet. A man once ate an entire airplane. I know you don't believe me, but listen, you can go research it for yourself. In 1978, a French man named... Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. This guy... I'll give his initials, ML, began an unusual endeavor. He started eating an airplane. He developed an unusual tolerance for eating dangerous objects when he was nine years old due to a condition which led him to an appetite for non-nutritious items. It took him two years to complete his metal-filled meal. He finished consuming his last bite of the airplane in 1980. Now that's crazy. <laughs> but people say believing the Bible is crazy. Believing the gospel is crazy. Believing in the resurrection is crazy. In fact, listen to this. I had a friend of, me, a friend of mine that I, that I grew up with. He, he, he looked at me and he said, the only way I would ever believe that Jesus rose from the grave is if I traveled back in time and watched it for myself. Now that is crazy. We could go into extra biblical references like Josephus who lived a little bit after Jesus who was a Jewish historian who had no necessary reason to affirm Jesus rose from the grave. And he says in his writings, I got it in my office, you're welcome to read it for yourself, that Jesus rose from the grave just shortly after his life. I say all that to, to lead into, again, this thought. The greatest, or excuse me, the resurrection 
is the greatest truth in the world, and you'd be crazy not to believe it. So are you going to be like Thomas, who in this life declares Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God? Or are you going to be like so many unbelievers who will say those words in eternity when it is far too late? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.